We hope you're blessed and encouraged by the following study from Calvary Chapel, Elmani. It's our simple prayer that you would grow stronger and deeper in an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Should you have any questions, please feel free to contact us here at Calvary Chapel, Elmani. Over to the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 12. And we'll start here and... Actually, just want to do my best to be able to kind of get out of the way and let the Lord, I pray, show us the cross of Christ. Because as we saw in the video, really that cross is the key to victory. It's the key to being rescued. It's the key to the Lord Jesus Christ redeeming us and you know earning the title deed to planet Earth and all the people. And it's the key that will rescue us from our sins. And we're all, the Bible says, uh, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You may be a good person, and you might be, you know, a lot better than me, but you're not God. You're not perfect. You have sinned against a holy God. And this is why when you read in the Old Testament, of all the sacrifices that were made because of the fact that there needed to be an atonement, because when we violate uh, a holy God, there must be a sacrifice. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And all those sacrifices in the Old Testament, they were all pictures of one day when Jesus Christ would be sacrificed for us. And this is why, although we go through life and there are so many distractions, you know, it's been said, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. If he can't deceive you, he'll distract you. There's so many things that get in the way and, and here in Hebrews 12, I just love what it says in verse 1. It says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And, you know, many of you are probably familiar with this passage. You can visualize a runner. You know, and he's running the race. Life is like that. Life in one sense is like a race. You're not necessarily racing against other people. You're racing against the best possible you. And the main thing is, yes, you want to finish well, but you want to finish. You want to cross that finish line. You want to enter into heaven. And so as you're running the race, he says right here, um, you know, because we've seen such a great example set before us in Hebrews 11. He said, since we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, people who through the eons of time have done amazing things because of their faith and love for God. He says, let us lay aside every weight. You know, as a runner, you would shed yourself of any unnecessary baggage. He says, that's kind of the way you're supposed to run this race. And the sin which so easily ensnares us. Those are things that may be neutral, maybe in and of themselves they're not bad, but they're not necessary, right? And what they'll do is they'll weigh you down. They're, like I said earlier, distractions. And then, of course, the sin. He just says, man, lay it aside and let us run with endurance this race, this life that is set before us. And then he gives us the key in verse 2, looking unto Jesus. The author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, so much of life is dependent upon whether or not we will, like it says right here, look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. 
One translation says fixing our eyes on Jesus. Another says keeping our eyes on Jesus. Another says keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. We are to be a people who are a cross-eyed people, a people who are fixed on the Lord. Bruce Shelley in his book on Christianity and the history of Christianity said it's the only religion in the world where the centerpiece of that faith is the humiliation of their God. But why? Why is it that we look to the cross? Why is it that our centerpiece is the cross of Christ where Jesus died? Why is that? Because it's there in the cross that we discover the one thing that makes us, you know, heals us, that thaws us, that does everything to help us. And that is, it's there that we see the love that God has for us. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And this is why we need to be a people who fix our eyes on Jesus. And we need to be a people who never forget the cross. Because, you know, we could take a survey here. A lot of you guys are probably going through things. I don't know what the challenges are in your life, the struggles, just uh, the way that, you know, our mind plays games with us, our, you know, our friends uh, play games with us. I mean, you name it, from A to Z, a lot of different scenarios here. Some people may be struggling in their marriage, maybe in their finances, maybe their body. Um, uh, so many things in this world that we live in and we go up and down and we're depressed. Some people want to take their life and commit suicide. They're doing drugs. They're trying to just run from their problems. They're just they're getting themselves drunk. Some are having extramarital affairs. I mean, there are just so many things. And, and, and the one thing that's necessary for us to, to really heal us is love. It's, it's God's love, you know, and, and that's what the cross conveys to us. See, we need to be a people who really fix our eyes on Jesus and on his cross. C.H. Spurgeon said the world's one and only remedy is the cross. That's why we sing that famous song, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. You know, do you sing that song? Do you cling to the cross of Christ? Do you ever think about the cross? Oftentimes I think we forget the cross. Oswald Chambers said, All heaven is interested in the cross of Christ. All hell is terribly afraid of the cross of Christ, while men are the only beings who more or less ignore the cross of Christ. I hope it's not a bore. I hope you don't ignore the cross because it's there and only there where you will find the revelation of God's love and salvation. I like what one person said, for him to see me mended, I must first see him torn. And if you want healing in your life, if you want that, that fullness, that satisfaction, that salvation, what life is all about, if you want your heart, your life, your soul mended, if you really want that, then first you must see him torn can I ask you a question do you see him torn do you see the cross of Christ it's so important that you do because if you do you will discover the only remedy for life and that is the love and salvation of almighty God I think I've mentioned to you guys probably a million times that the symbol of love what does the world say the symbol of love is a heart right but I think the symbol of love should really be a cross Huh. Because it's there on the cross of Christ that love is found and discovered and made possible and manifested and demonstrated in its highest fashion. 
the cross should be the symbol of love. You know, whatever you do, and I think that everyone here, we're all searching for love. Well, we look for a spouse, and I pray that God would give us a spouse that really loves us. If you have a spouse that really loves you, then you have a good thing, but it's not always the case. And you might be looking for it in a relationship, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, sometimes with your parents, maybe even your kids. But understand this, that that love is limited. See, when you look to the Lord for love, I want to encourage you to know that it's there you'll find it. Don't go looking for love in all the wrong places. My wife always tells me that, you know, or faces. Man, we have to look to the Lord himself. And I pray that today I could just ask you that question. Can you see him? Can you see Jesus on the tree of Calvary for you and me? Can you really see him? There and dying for you, all your sins you ever did, past, present, future, they were all laid on him. Can you see what God has done? You know, he went through so much for us. And I just kind of want to just, I'll throw out some scriptures. And if you're taking notes, I want to encourage you maybe to write them down. Maybe later on you can go home and and look them up or, or just however the Lord would lead you. Maybe you might be led to... Go home and watch uh, The Passion of the Christ or maybe one of these movies about Jesus. Uh, I think that would be a great way to finish your Good Friday. But, you know, uh, he went through so much for us. You guys remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? Do you remember the story there? The hematidrosis, that's what doctors call it. When blood begins to gush out of your sweat glands. That's what happened to Jesus as he was praying. And he said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And he prayed three times. You know, and in his humanity, Jesus did not want to go to the cross. And in his deity, he was, he was you know, I, I don't know what the right word is, but he was thinking of this moment in time when he would be separated from his father. And in his humanity, he didn't want to go, but the father said, Son, you have to. You know, if, if there's, uh, you know, any other way to heaven, you know, because some people say, well, there's multiple ways to heaven. Then why did Jesus have to die? He said, Father, if it's possible, let this cut pass from me. But not my will, but thy will be done. I mean, if there was another way, if you could go through Buddha or Muhammad or some other way, if you could go to heaven by being a good person, then the Father would not have had to send his son to die on the cross. He would have said, okay, follow that guy or follow that guy or do this or do that. I would never give my son if it were not necessary. I don't even think I could do it. I don't have that kind of love, but I know God does. And God gave his son. The cup was there and he drank from the cup. And we need to see how much he went through for us. There in Gethsemane, Jesus prayed. And they came, if you remember, and they arrested him. And Jesus was then taken first to Annas, the ex-high priest, according to John 18, 12 through 13. And uh, this man was the former high priest. He was taken out of power by the Roman government. But it was then that the beatings began upon Christ, according to John chapter 18, verse 22. And then he was then taken to the house of Caiaphas, the current legal high priest appointed by the government, where some of the elders and scribes were gathered together. Altogether, Jesus went through six trials. There were many false witnesses, and they weren't getting anywhere because they really had nothing to say. This man had done no wrong. 
Caiaphas took matters into his own hands. And then he asked Jesus, he said, you know, are you, tell me, answer me, are you the son of God, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, it is as you say, and you will see the son of man coming in the clouds of glory. It was at that point that the high priest tore his clothes and he said, blasphemy. And he sentenced Christ to death. Then they began something that they did throughout the night and even on into the next morning. They spit in his face, the Bible says. They blindfolded him and then they began to beat him. Okay, now if you got a blindfold on, that means you don't see the punch coming. And so that means you get solid impact for every blow. This is how it began. Immediately following this, as Jesus was being led away in the wee hours of the morning, it's interesting, right after Jesus was sentenced to die from the high priest, after he had been beaten, spit, and mocked upon, as he's being led away, right there and then, he looks to the side, and guess who he sees? He sees Peter. And right then, at then, at that moment, his eyes lock with Peter while Peter is denying that he ever knew him, swearing, I don't know the man. And here was his most loyal follower. You see, this is what Christ went through for us. Jesus had been betrayed, arrested, abandoned, mocked, beaten, condemned, and denied, and it's just the beginning of the evening. After John, Jesus, after dawn, Jesus was formally condemned by the Sanhedrin. That would be the Jewish high court, the, the Supreme Court. And they had all these other meetings that everything was illegal. Trials could occur only in the regular meeting places of the Sanhedrin, not in the palace of the high priest. They couldn't occur on the eve of the Sabbath or feast days or at night. And a sentence of guilty could not be pronounced until the following day. All these things they violated in their injustice towards Jesus. But it didn't matter. Once again, they condemned Christ to die. But since they themselves didn't have the authority to carry out the sentence of death, they took Jesus to Pontius Pilate. We see for the first time in Luke chapter 23, verses 1 and 2. But now when they take him to Pontius Pilate, the charges have changed. No longer is the accusation blasphemy. Now the charges are trumped up to, do, to say that Jesus claimed to be the human king of the Jews, supposedly forbidding others to pay taxes. Now when Pilate examined him, he fought no, found no fault with Christ. And when he found out that Jesus was from Galilee, what he did was he took him to Herod. He sent him to Herod, according to Luke chapter 23, 9 through 11. And when Jesus went to Herod, he didn't say a single word. Imagine that. Not one word. Herod was really excited to be able to talk to him. He wanted Jesus to perform or do some type of miracle. But Jesus didn't say a single word to him. Why? Because he knew that his heart was not interested. And then we read in Luke twenty three eleven that Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him and sent him back to Pilate. So Jesus was then sent back to Pilate for the second time, according to Luke 23, verse 16. And if you guys remember, Pilate was trying to get off the hook, to not have to make a decision. And there's a lot of people like that. You know, they, they hear about Jesus, but in one sense they think, well, you know what, I don't really have to make a decision. I'll just kind of live my life and, and die. Well, if you make no decision, then you've made a decision. 
you got to choose Christ. Herod, I mean, Pilate tried his best, man, to, to wash his hands, to get off the hook, to not make a decision, to not be responsible. But it wasn't going to be an easy thing to do. He tried sending to Herod again to no avail. And then he remembered something else. He said, hey, wait a minute. At the feast, we have a tradition that we can release a prisoner to the people. And so he thought that this was the way out. And so what he did was he gave them a choice between a man named Barabbas, who was a murderer, and Jesus. Surely they would choose Jesus, right? But you guys know the story. They chose Barabbas. And what did they do? Then they sent Jesus to be crucified. And this is where, you guys, it, it begins. You know, I remember the first time I told uh, you know, my girlfriend that I loved her. Uh, she didn't believe me. And uh, you know how that is, right? If you tell someone you love them, does that prove that you love them? No, huh? Especially you girls. You need to know that, okay? <laughs> Some guy tells you he loves you. Um, doesn't mean he does. He's got to prove it, right? He's got to prove his love to you. And sometimes, unfortunately, even in the Bible, we read about, you know, Leah. She had a husband named Jacob. And the Lord knew that he didn't really love her. He saw that she was unloved. You know, we see it sometimes in marriages. You know, and it happens all over the place. You know, friends. And, you know, it just, I, I know that we all have to give each other room to grow and grace. And we fall short. We're just human beings. But when you find somebody who really loves you, see, and that's, that's who God is. And in case you're wondering, well, I don't, I don't know if he really loves me. Because, man, all these things that I've gone through in my life. How could God love me? And this is where we look to Calvary. This is where we look to what he went through in order to save us from our sins. You know, when you see the whole thing, and now Jesus is about to be physically beaten, uh, it says in Luke 23, and then if you read John as well, that they flogged Jesus. How many of you here have seen um the Passion of the Christ, just out of curiosity. Were you guys able to watch that, that flogging? I mean, that was very, real hard to, to look at. That happened to Christ, and even much more so. The flogging, uh, during the flogging, a victim was tied to a post, leaving his back entirely exposed. And the Romans used a whip called the flagellum, which consisted of small pieces of bone and metal attached to a number of leather strands. And the number of strikes, we don't know how many times they struck Christ. We know that in Jewish law, uh, they would limit it to 40 or 39 to prevent excessive blows. But we don't have the case in the Roman government. There was no law that put any limits on the number of blows given. But during that flogging, the skin was stripped from the back, exposing a bloody mass of muscle and bone. Extreme blood loss occurred from the beating and weakening the victim oftentimes to the point of death. See, this is what Jesus went through. Now, the thing about it is you're like, well, maybe you would do that. You would lay down your life. But you have to know who this is. This is God. You know, this is God the Son. We believe in the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And God the Son came and he died on a cross. He didn't create an angel and send it down to kill it. He didn't create some other human being and make it die. God came himself. Jesus came, and he suffered in such a fashion. 
Afterwards, they crowned him with thorns, a crown that probably covered his entire head. It wasn't more than likely a ring that we normally see. And there were thorns one to two inches long that were then beaten into his head. You know, Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, gives a little bit of insight. It says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spinning. Isaiah 52, 14 tells us something so important. It says, Just as there were many who appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. Let me share something with you. You know, when Christ went through the beating, behind every blow was the devil. You see, there's nothing to even begin to compare with what Christ went through. You know, the Phoenicians, the Carthagans, uh, the Romans, what they did was they took crucifixion and they, they perfected it to, what, to offer the maximum amount of pain for the maximum amount of time. And as Jesus went through these things, what it is is an expression of his love. You know, some even say that this is the reason after, you know, he went through, can't even tell he's a man, he looks like a piece of meat, right? Some even say that this is the reason that after Jesus rose from the dead, that they didn't recognize him that easily. You know, it's interesting. You know, I don't know if you guys ever thought about this, but, you know, you think of the scars of Christ. What do you normally think of? Normally, we think of the scars of Christ being on his hands and his feet right? But was that the only thing that was bloodied? It was more than his hands and his feet. It was his back. It was his head. It was his face. I mean, if if it's a consistent belief that whatever Jesus suffered during this crucifixion, that he bears the scars, I would venture to say that one day when we see Jesus, that we will see scars all over his body. And that might explain why they didn't really recognize him. That's how much God loves you. You see, you got to see the cross. If that was me, I don't know about you, but, you know, probably about, you know, like <laughs> one one hundredth into it, I would say, forget this, man, I don't need that. Some people say, well, God needed us. He didn't need us. He was self-sufficient prior to our creation. But God did it because he created you in his image. And he loved you. And he died for you. And for us, we have to be able to look at the sacrifice of the cross and be able to see it in order for us to be transformed. If you're here today and you're living in sin, if you're here today and you're not in love with God, it's because you can't see the cross Open your eyes. Open your heart. That's the healing. You're like, well, I need medication. No, you don't need medication. You just need Jesus. You need healing. You need to open your heart to the love of God. You know, when Pilate did this to Christ, and this is just the flogging, he was hoping to muster up some compassion from the crowd to say, you know, behold the man. Look at what he's gone through presenting to Jesus to them as a bloody mess, surely it would muster up some sympathy. But you guys know what happened. According to John 19, 6, instead, 
they loudly, repeatedly, viciously yelled over and over again, crucify him, crucify him. Again, Pilate tries to wash his hands, but he can't. And with his God-given authority, he caves in and joins the crowd. He rejects Christ and delivers him over to be crucified. In Mark chapter 15, verses 16 through 19, we have the account where Jesus is there in the hands of the Roman soldiers. And they gathered together, the whole garrison did. And what they did was they clothed him with purple. They twisted this crown of thorns on his head. And they began to mock him, salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they struck him on the head with a reed. They spat on him and worshipped him mockingly. It's at that point that he carried his cross down. Today, if you were to go to Israel, you'd be able to walk down the Via de la Rosa, the path of suffering. When you see everywhere he went, uh, starting from Gethsemane, outside and within the city, he had already walked probably about two and a half miles, but now he walks 650 yards uh, to Calvary, and he's carrying the cross. He's carrying the patabellum, which weighs approximately 100 pounds. And so on his way, after having gone through everything he's already gone through, he begins to fall down. And you guys know what happens, right? Uh, what ends up happening is they then appeal to Simon, one of the spectators, to help him carry the cross to Calvary. And there they crucify him. There they put him on that wood and they drove the seven-inch nails one centimeter in diameter into each wrist and both feet. And then they lifted him up and they crucified him. They offered him wine mingled with drink, mingled with myrrh, but he refused it. He didn't want the painkiller. He was determined not to dull his senses in the least. He wanted to drink the cup the Father had determined for him. And so they crucified him. The Bible says it was the third hour. And so for us, that means it was 9 a.m. And, you know, when you study the, the, the cross of Christ, you guys, you know, I want to encourage you, you know, to, to look at your Bible and, and to know that there's no book like this. There's no book that tells the end from the beginning. There's no book that tells the future. There's no other religious book that you could look to that has predicted the regathering of Israel into the nation of Israel. And in 1948, they became a nation again. You can look at all the other books, nothing there. What you find is that in the first coming of Christ, Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies. And uh, the odds of that happening, even eight of those prophecies, you would have to take the whole state of Texas, fill it up two feet deep in silver dollars. Okay, so can you visualize that? What's the one word about Texas, you guys? It's big, right? Okay, now let's, let's cover the whole state of Texas with uh, silver dollars. And then you take one silver dollar, you put a little X on it, and you throw it there in the middle of Texas somewhere. Then you take a man, you blindfold him, and you throw him into the state of Texas and say, okay, you got one chance, buddy, one chance, and you got to pick the one with the X. The odds of him picking that one silver dollar are the same odds of any individual fulfilling even just eight prophecies of Christ. But he fulfilled 300 of them. And so some people say, well, Christians, they're not that intellectual. Oh, yes, they are. They're very intellectual. We have examined the evidence 
just like Simon Greenleaf, who is the dean of law at Harvard University, and we have come to believe that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world, that we are not here by evolution and random chance, by a series of fortuitous occurrences, that we are here with the God who made us. He gave us a purpose. We strayed. We went our own way. We sinned against a holy God. But he made a way by dying on that cross for us. And he has proven it beyond a shadow of a doubt by fulfilling all these prophecies. And you guys know what's going to happen on Sunday, right? I mean, he rises from the dead. I mean, you try it on your own. Houdini said he could do it. I'll do it. I'll rise. No, you. sorry, buddy. They all, all these other guys. And again, not to sound offensive, but what I'm trying to share with you guys is reasons to believe. It's called apologetics. Muhammad stayed dead. Buddha stayed dead. All these other so-called founders of great religions, they stayed dead. Jesus didn't. All you have to do is open your heart and examine the evidence. See, and when Jesus died on that cross, uh, so many prophecies in the Old Testament were fulfilled. Typologies, like in Genesis 22, when Abraham was there called to sacrifice his son Isaac. Or Exodus chapter 12, the Passover lamb. Or Numbers 21, if you remember the story there, everybody had been bitten by the serpents. That's a symbol of sin. But what did Moses say? God said, hey Moses, what I want you to do is to take a serpent, you put it on a pole, and you lift it up. And if you lift it up, all the people have to do is look at it. That's all you got to do, look at it. You know, and one of the things about Christianity that makes it distinctive than, to any other religion in the world is every other religion in the world, you got to climb the mountain. It's works-oriented. Christianity is the only one where you don't have to climb the mountain to reach God. God came down the mountain to reach you. It's not works, it's faith. Believe. Look to Christ. And that's what we find there in Numbers 21. Jesus said in John 3, 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. It's interesting. Before crucifixion was ever invented, before it was ever invented, in Psalm 22, 16 and 7, it says, They pierced my hands and my feet. The whole psalm is about the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, there's that evidence. There's this message of God's love for us that is saturated throughout the scriptures. You know, and, and when you look at this, and, and we're going to just go through this, and again, I'm just throwing these things out there because this is what my, my desire is. Somehow, some way that, you know, in just thinking about these things, that you can have some type of a, a spiritual visual of the cross. Because if you do, then God will change your life. You know, he died for you. He died for you so that he can save you. He died for you because he loves you. You know, and we're going to see it's amazing what the cross does. You know, looking at everything up to this point, to me, it's the epitome of pure love. It really is. The Bible says in Romans 5, 8 that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, scarcely for a righteous man would one die, but every once in a while you might die for a righteous man. Would you die for your enemies? 
Would you die for the wicked? That's what God did while we were still his enemies. He died for us. You see? And what we find right here, just looking at this, to me, it's already the picture of pure love. But if there could be something purer than pure, and I, I don't know if my son's here, but he's, I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying that. You know, Purer than pure. It's already pure love, but if it's, there could be something purer than pure, let me just say that, um, it would be what, what Jesus said. The very first words after they nailed him to the cross, after everything they had done, after they lifted him up and they put it in the hole, and there he is seven feet high, three feet off the ground were his feet, the first thing he said is, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. And I would just say, like, what? You know, I mean, do you know what's going on? They're, they're nailing you to a cross. You're God. You're innocent. They're vile. They're ruthless. They're wicked. They hate you. They're killing you. They're spitting on you. They're mocking you. And the first words that come out of your mouth are, Father, forgive them. And, and just, you know, to make sure, and it's kind of interesting, you know, because you're like, well, some people might say that, but do they really mean it? Just to make sure that the father would be convinced and the father would carry out his request, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Father, forgive them, because in all reality, they don't realize what they're doing. He really wanted them to be forgiven. And then you begin to just look at the Lord on the cross. When he's there on the cross, the religious leaders are walking back and forth. And, hey, if you're the, the Savior, you know, come down from that cross. And then we'll believe that you're the Messiah that's supposed to come. He said he saved others. Himself he cannot save. Come down from the cross and then we'll believe in you. But we know that if he came down from the cross to save himself, then he would not have saved us. And they're reviling him. Even the two thieves that were crucified with him, one on each side, they began to mock him until finally one of the thieves was really, he really saw it. He really saw Jesus die. He saw Jesus. He heard the words. He saw the love. And what ended up happening? Eventually, the the one thief, he changed his mind. He said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then Jesus uttered his second word from the cross in John 19, Luke 23, 43. He said, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I mean, there is Jesus to the very end, saving souls. It's an amazing thing. You know, that's the promise. You know, and, and that's why, you know, getting saved... It's not a religion. It's not like, okay, well, I have to do my catechism and I got to do my ceremonies and I got to do my sacraments and I have to go to church, you know, 777 times or something like that. It's not like that. If you could just say something in your heart as simple as that, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I mean, you're expressing faith in what he's done. If you can just do that, 
then right there and then it's a simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then, then you can be saved. You know, when Jesus was on the cross, the third word he said is found in John 19, 26 through 27. When Jesus saw his mom there, you know, and there he is dying on the cross, but concerned about others. And he saw his mom and he saw John and, and he said, hey, you know, uh, woman, behold your son. And then he said to John, behold your mother. And basically what he was doing is, is, is basically saying, hey, we take care of my mom. I mean, there he is right there on the cross. The whole, th- what held him to the cross? Was it the nails? It was love. And there he is on the cross. All he's thinking about is you. All he's thinking about is us. It says in Hebrews 12, verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him despised the shame and endured the suffering. Right? He, he saw, what, you know what he saw? He saw us in heaven. He saw us redeemed. He saw us home with him forever. And that's what kept him on the cross. And there he is thinking of others while he's there. The fourth word he said is found in Matthew 27, verse 46. It was about the ninth hour. Okay, so the third hour is 9 a.m. What's the ninth hour? want to get you guys thinking now. All right, 3 o'clock, right? Right around there, 3 o'clock. And what does he say? He speaks Aramaic, remember? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. You guys know anybody here know Aramaic? Some of you here do, huh? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it was at that moment in time Jesus bore all our sins. All the things we've done wrong. All the times you were disrespectful to your parents. All the times you told a lie. Maybe you beat somebody up. I don't know. You did drugs. You had sex outside of marriage. You were cruel. You spoke to your kids in an unkind fashion. All the things that we've done wrong, all our sins were laid on him. And when our sins were laid on him, because you remember in the Old Testament, they would put their hands on the animal. It was a transfer of the sins and the guilt to the animal. Then they would kill the animal. You know, it was like this sentence that we didn't have the the capacity to pay because we're not eternal beings. It's an eternal offense against an eternal God. Therefore, it had to be an eternal being to die for us. Jesus died for us, and he suffered the everlasting wrath of God. And on that moment of time, he was separated from his Father who could not behold evil. And for the first time in all eternity, they were apart. And he was forsaken by his father. You know, you read the book of Genesis. It's real easy in the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. There's a conversation going on there between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're not made in the image of angels. We're made in the image of God. In Isaiah 6, then the Lord said, who will go for us? 
So there for the first time ever, the father was separated from his son. How many of you here have sons? Just out of curiosity, you have a son. You know, imagine, you know, I I know you guys love your sons. Well, most of them, right? You love your sons, right? But, you know, just never, ever, ever, ever being separated. Ever. And then one day, he's gone. I remember one time I had a dream that my son died. I'll never forget that dream I had. Because even though my, my son gets me frustrated sometimes, I love him so much. I love him. And I'm just a man. And so God the Father, you know, you're like, well, how did God the Father get a son? Did he have, you know, celestial sex or something? No. Perish the thought. It's just a description of their everlasting relationship. That's all. And I remember I had a dream. And I was driving. And I saw my son laid out on the road. He was bloody and and just lying there face down. And I was driving by. And I stopped and I went and I looked son, my son had died and I just remember weeping my son, my son and thank God I woke up at that point from my dream, from my nightmare and I went over to my son and I saw him there, he was in his bed and he was asleep and I woke him up, I said get up (laughs) I said are you alive, you know but you know it was at that moment Jesus was separated from the Father and he bore our sins. And you want to know something? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken so that we would never have to be forsaken. Did you know that once you become a Christian that God will never, ever leave you nor forsake you? Never. See, that's what we have as Christians. I mean, you look at Jesus, and then, you know, he, he, you know, he dies. And crucifixion, and we don't have time to really get into the whole thing, but the dynamic of it is, is really death by, by suffocation. You know, uh, you're held up, you know, by these nails, but that won't hold you up. So what they do is they put a little piece of wood in the bottom of your feet, and every once in a while you can push yourself up. And when you let yourself down, it's hard to get air in your lungs and what ends up happening is a shallowness of breath causes small areas of lung collapse, decrease oxygen, and increased carbon dioxide cause acidic conditions in the tissues. Then the fluid builds up in the lungs, and it makes the situation worse, and then eventually the heart is stressed and eventually fails. You know, when they pierced Jesus' side and water and blood came out, doctors tell us that what that is is a ruptured heart. Jesus died of a, of a broken heart. You know, and, and you look at that aspect of crucifixion, and it may or may not explain the physical portion of his death, but we know the real reason is deeper than that. When he died, it leads us to the fifth word from the cross, and that's over in John nineteen twenty eight, where Jesus, uh, it says, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. Imagine that, 
the water of life, the living waters, the one who through his creation poured out the rivers and oceans with his crystal chalices, the one who invented the tears and the aqueducts. He said, I thirst. And the thing is, and you guys probably know this, um, they soaked a sponge of wine vinegar, they put it on a hyssop, and they put it up to his mouth, and he drank from that sponge. He didn't really say that because he was thirsty. You know, Psalm says that his his, his tongue was sticking to the roof of his mouth. But I don't think that's the real reason that he said that, because again, you look at John 19, he says, now that he knows that everything's accomplished... He says, I thirst. And then what does the Bible say? So when Jesus, this is the sixth word. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said those three awesome words for us. It is finished. And you guys know what that is in the the Bible was written in Greek language, right? To Now, Okay, you guys know Aramaic? Now you know Greek was to Telestai. Debt paid in full. How many of you here are in debt? No, I'm just joking. I won't ask you. <laughs> Wouldn't it be cool if someone paid away all your debt, especially for some of you that are maybe buried in debt, right? Well, we had this spiritual debt that we could never pay. But Jesus paid it. He paid it off. He finished the work. And, and I want to share this with you guys to me, this is so cool. You want to know why? Because I fail the Lord a lot. I fall short every day. You know, and, and if, if my salvation was dependent upon, you know, my behavior or my perfection, then I would be a pitiful creature. There's no way, you know, I can make it. But, you know, when I do stumble, I get up, I ask God for forgiveness. And then I'm, I remember, you know what? I'm saved by the blood of the Lamb. That He has paid that debt that I could not pay. You know, it's interesting. Matthew twenty-seven fifty says it was a loud cry. And He wanted everyone to hear. <laughs> you know, everybody to hear. It is finished. And that's what the Lord wants us to hear today. You know, the very last words that Jesus spoke from the cross are in Luke twenty-three forty-six. It says, and when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, that's what we just heard right now, you know, uh, it is finished. When he said that, then he spoke to his father and he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. That's when he died. You know, I don't, it wasn't necessarily the physical things that took his life. It was the moment that he surrendered it. You know, the Bible says, Jesus said, no man takes my life. I lay it down, right? And that's what Jesus did. 1 Corinthians fifteen three, Paul says, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. You know, how many people do you know who have died for you? You know, probably not a lot if any. But it's so cool to know that not only did someone die for us, but that someone was God himself. And the Bible says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
Do you see him? Do you see him torn? Do you see the cross of Christ? It's so important that you do, because if you do, you will discover the one and only remedy for life. Let me just close real quick with five things uh, I just want to share with you guys. When it comes to love, because remember, the, the cross is a symbol of love. No more hearts, okay, guys? No, I'm just joking. Yeah. You know, you symbol of love is the cross, okay? And... Um, you know, the world that we live in, they're starving for love. A lot of them don't even think we can find love. Uh, I read this quote by Johnny Depp, and I felt so sorry for this guy. This, he said, uh, the only creatures that are evolved enough to convey pure love are dogs and infants. And I felt sorry for him. I said, man, you know, where's God? And where are the people of God who are trying to love? Let me share with you five ways the cross is a work of love and salvation. Number one, what the cross does is it starts love. It starts love. 1 John 4.10 says, And this is love, not that we love God, but that he first loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. How did love start in the human race? It has its start in God's heart. Jesus was crucified, the Bible says, even before the foundation of the world. And what we see is in that cross, God's love was set in motion towards the human race. The Bible says that God is loved, 1 John 4, 8. And what we find is that God loves us, not because of who we are necessarily, but because of who He is. He is a lover. You know, how many of you, I just out of curiosity, have you ever gone out to your car, turned the key, and it didn't start? They've done that. It's a bummer, huh? You know, every once in a while, I'll pull my lawnmower or whatever, my weed whacker, and I'm like, ah, you know, you just bang it on the ground a couple of times, and no, it doesn't start. It doesn't start. You know, for some people, it love, love, love. It never starts because they don't see the cross. Second thing after starting love is showing love. Uh, I think Henry mentioned this, or one of the verses, in 1 John 4, 9, In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. So this is how it was manifested. This is how it was shown when God sent His Son. Number three is proving love. Romans 5, 8, I mentioned to you earlier, God demonstrates His own love toward us, and that while we are still sinners... Christ died for us. And so, you know, as far as God proving his love to us, it, it might not be found in a lot of other places. You know, I think life is good. But you know what? Even if your life is messed up, just the fact that God saved you is enough to worship him. See, why? Because he's proven his love. He's shown his love. And then what ends up happening, number four, is then we begin to know what love is. We begin to know love. First John 3, 16. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. You see, now we begin to realize what love really is. When we understand that love is not a feeling. You know, sometimes you get a husband and wife and they say, well, we don't love each other anymore. You don't. 
Why? Because, you know, I don't got butterflies. And they're gone. You know, all he does now is he comes home and he watches sports. He wants supper. Goes to work. He doesn't pay any attention to me. I don't love him anymore. Then, then you don't understand what love is. Love is not a feeling. Love is actually a commandment. Love is unconditionally, sacrificially seeking someone else's highest good. Expecting nothing in return. That's what pure love is. And as we look at the cross and what God did for us, we begin to find that, wow, that's how love works. It's not me feeling it. It's not them earning it. It's not me doing something so that I might get something back. It's unconditionally, sacrificially, seeking their highest good, expecting nothing in return. It's like looking at somebody and you don't even look into their eyes to see the reflection of yourself. All you do is you see them and nobody else. See, that's how we begin to know love. And then the last one is giving love. And that is found in John 3.16. For God so loved the world, the Bible says, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, many of you here have done that, huh? You guys believe in Jesus? You believe that he came, he died for you, he was put in a grave and he rose again. And you're willing to turn from your sins. All those things, you're like, what are sins? Is that fun in life? No. Sins are all those things that are toxins and destructive to you. That's all God wants is the best for you. Husband and wife to be able to stay married for the rest of their life and not have like 40% of men have an affair. You know, people who have a desire to raise their children and to take them all the way to heaven to do what's best for them. So you turn from your sins and you trust in Christ. And what ends up happening is God saves you. Why? Because Jesus has proven. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You know, I don't really have the words, you know, to communicate to you. You know, how old am I now? Let's see. I was born in 66. I don't know. I'm like 46 or something like that, you know. Uh, sometimes I wish I could talk, you know, sit down and talk with all the different age groups. Hey, do you guys go through, what's a, what's a midlife crisis or whatever? I don't know. Someone was talking to me about that. Hey, maybe, Manny, that's what you're going through is a midlife crisis. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. All I'm saying is that, you know, a lot of things happen. You look to different, whatever, uh, accomplishments for affirmation. Um, you know, life can go up and down. And you can find yourself maybe even stressed or depressed. And what ends up, what, you know what always brings me back? You want to you know what is my, my anchor? You want to know what my, uh, my uh, plumb line is? It's the love of God. I just, I just come back to the fact that God really, He does love me. And what ends up happening is God does a work. You know, and that's my prayer for you. I'm not saying that we can shield you necessarily from the hard times or from the mental, you know, gymnastics that take place in your heart. But if this truth can be planted in your heart, then I believe it will be an anchor for your soul. And it will carry you through all the difficulties in life. You see, that's what Good Friday is all about. 
It's all about that cross, and we saw it earlier. Where he's rescued society, one day all these evils will be gone. Every wrong will be made right. Justice will prevail, and there will be a heaven. Society will be rescued. Not only does he rescue society, he rescues individuals. But that's a choice that you have to make. Will you take the evidence uh, for what it is? Will you understand where it leads? It leads to not a religion, but it leads to a relationship with God. You know, Christianity is really the only religion in the world where you can have a relationship with God. And I figure, man, if I can have that with people, how much more so can I have that with God? You guys remember that poem, and I'll close with this, One Solitary Life. Speaking of Jesus... It says, he was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter's shop until he was about 30 years old when public opinion turned against him. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never went to college. He never visited a big city other than Jerusalem. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born he did none of the things usually associated with greatness. He had no credentials except himself. He was only 33 when his friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was then nailed to a cross between two Roman thieves. While dying, his executors gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen centuries have come and gone, and today Jesus is the central figure of the human race. And the leaders of mankind's progress, all the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever ruled put together have not affected the life of mankind on earth as powerfully as this one solitary life. Why is that? You guys know, huh? Because Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the King of Kings. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Savior of the world. And I pray that tonight, for those of us who do know the Lord, you know, we could just stop and contemplate this cross. Let that love sink in. Think of him. Worship him. And today, if you're not a Christian, and just in case you don't know the Lord, or maybe you've drifted away, that today would be the day you come back to Christ. Today would be the day that you receive him. You take that, that step of faith, and you make him Lord and Savior of your life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much. Lord, for your love and your grace in our life. Uh, Lord, there are no words. I know I fall so short to communicate, Lord, what you have done for us on this cross. And I just pray, Lord, tonight as we partake of communion and as we come and we celebrate Good Friday, Lord, that, Lord, that whatever needs to happen here would take place. Lord, that... Um, your people would understand your love, that they would see it, that we would know it, 
And Lord, that if there's anyone here tonight who doesn't know you, they're not really born again, that tonight by your love and your grace and your power and your spirit, Lord, that they would be saved, that they would know that you are this God who, who loves us, holy and beautiful. And if you're here today and you want to receive Christ, um, what I want you to do is just right where you're at, you just have to pray a simple prayer. Like we saw the thief on the cross. All he said was, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's all you have to do, a simple prayer tonight. And your whole destiny is changed. Don't worry about, well, I got to clean up my life first and I got to, you know, do this and that. You'll never be able to do that on your own strength. You know, maybe you're here and you're like, well, I still have a few questions. I tell you what, just take that step of faith. Give God a chance. And you watch how he'll answer all those questions. But the most important thing right now is, is your soul. And this is why Jesus died. And so if you are interested, if you want the Lord, just pray this prayer in your heart. Something like this. My dear Lord, I come to you today and I admit I have sinned. But I turn from my sin. And tonight I receive Christ as my Lord and Savior. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me to live life as a Christian from this day forward. In Jesus' name. We hope you were encouraged by this study. If you have any questions, please call us at Calvary Chapel El Monte at air code 626 454 3414. Remember that Jesus loves you.